Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. In March 1997, Vanity Fair magazine published a 25-page special report on how London, England got its groove back. Just like in the swinging 60s, Britain's capital was once again a cultural epicenter, teeming with new and youthful icons. According to the magazine, even its politicians were cool, or at least cool-ish. Vanity Fair wasn't the only North American publication to notice what was going on across the pond. Four months earlier, in November 1996, Newsweek ran an article that deemed London the coolest city on the planet. So what exactly was going on? What was all the fuss about? I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, part two of our look back at the rise and fall of Britpop and Cool Britannia. Last episode, we talked about the birth of Britpop, a wave of new music that mostly began in 1994 with Blur and Oasis. It swept up dozens of other bands like Pulp, Suede, Echo Belly, and Elastica, taking them along for a ride that peaked in 1996, when Oasis performed in front of 250,000 ecstatic fans over two days at the Nebworth Music Festival. Before Britpop began, most of the popular music in the UK was largely dictated by the United States. And same goes for the movie industry. With few good British films to choose from around this time, American movies brought in 10 times more than homegrown ones at the box office. But with the success of Britpop, a new kind of confidence emerged in the UK. Musicians, filmmakers, and other artists leaned into their culture to express themselves in ways that were uniquely British. When David Aukin took over as head of Film on Four, the movie division of Britain's Channel Four, he pledged to make British films appealing again. The renaissance began with a movie about a bumbling British bachelor who struggles to connect with an American woman he meets at a wedding. Screenwriter Richard Curtis was inspired to write the script for Four Weddings and a Funeral following a similar real-life incident. He said he had gone to the weddings of about 72 friends over a five-year span, and he had met a very attractive woman at one of the gatherings but failed to follow up on it. The movie that grew out of that experience would go on to become the highest-grossing British film at the time, and it marked the beginning of a new wave of successful movies made by UK filmmakers with the help of Film on Four. Four Weddings and a Funeral cast 33-year-old Hugh Grant as the stuttering bachelor Charles, and 36-year-old Andy McDowell as the strong American woman he falls in love with. Uh, I really feel, um, uh, in short, uh, to recap in a slightly clearer version, uh, in the words of David Cassidy, in fact, um, 
while he was still with the Partridge family. Uh, I think I love you. Four Weddings and a Funeral actually opened first in North America in April 1994. And as soon as it hit theaters, audiences fell head over heels for Hugh Grant. This was his first big part. Up until then, he had mainly been cast for smaller roles in period pieces and had yet to reach star status. In fact, he was only paid $35,000 for the part in Four Weddings. But by the time Grant attended the film's British premiere a month later with his gorgeous girlfriend, Elizabeth Hurley, who wore that famous Versace dress held together with safety pins, he was a household name. Four Weddings and a Funeral, which was directed by Mike Newell, made a remarkable $245 million at the worldwide box office, which is pretty stunning considering it cost less than $4 million to make and was filmed over a one-month period. It also went on to win multiple BAFTAs, which are Britain's Oscars, including Best Film, as well as a Best Actor Golden Globe for Hugh Grant. The movie also supercharged the career of screenwriter Richard Curtis, who went on to make a string of globally successful rom-coms, many of which featured Hugh Grant, including Notting Hill, Love Actually, and Bridget Jones. Curtis's films provided a fun look inside the lives of upper-class Brits, showcasing London as a vibrant and cosmopolitan city. And if that wasn't your cup of tea, no problem. Other British filmmakers who depicted a grittier and more violent version of the UK soon arrived on the scene as well. Take, for example, director Danny Boyle. Maybe you saw his debut film, the crime thriller Shallow Grave. Maybe not. But I can pretty much guarantee you saw his second movie. Choose life. Choose a job. Choose a career. Choose a family. Choose a big television. Choose washing machines, cars, compact displays, and electrical tin openers. 1996 Train Spotting made a star out of Ewan McGregor who you just heard as the character Renton, reciting the now-famous Choose Life monologue as he is chased down Edinburgh's Princess Street. The movie positioned Danny Boyle, as well as producer Andrew MacDonald and screenwriter John Hodge, as the bright young hopes of the British film industry. Boyle was essentially England's Quentin Tarantino, and Trainspotting was his pulp fiction. The in-your-face story about a bunch of heroin addicts swaggering and staggering around seedy streets in Edinburgh, Scotland, was based on a 1993 novel by Irvine Welsh. The book, written in Scottish dialect and street slang, became a literary sensation, championed by soccer fanzines and passed around prisons and prized by drug addicts. Boyle's movie adaptation came at just the right time, tapping into the Britpop zeitgeist with music from Blur, Pulp, and Elastica. When it opened in the UK in February 1996, it earned $20 million on a $3 million budget and became the second highest grossing British film behind only four weddings and a funeral. And the success didn't stop there. When Trainspotting opened in North America five months later in July 1996, the hype was already huge. Time Magazine speculated that the movie's main characters, Renton, Spud, Sick Boy, and Tommy, could become as popular as the Beatles. Miramax, which distributed the film in North America, decided to redub a sizable portion of the film over fears the US viewers wouldn't be able to understand the characters' heavy Edinburgh accents. They also removed two sex scenes to avoid an NC-17 rating. And even still, there was lots of controversial content. A review in the LA Times called Trainspotting profane yet eloquent, 
flush with the ability to create laughter out of unspeakable situations. I'm pretty sure that's a reference to the movie's infamous toilet scene. Because Trainspotting only played in a limited number of theaters in North America, it didn't earn the money other blockbusters made in 1996, just $17 million. But it became a cult classic, especially among the grunge generation, who hung posters in bedrooms and college dorms with Renton's Choose Life speech. Thanks to the success of Trainspotting and Four Weddings and a Funeral, plus the start of Britain's National Lottery, which poured much-needed funds into the arts, investments in the UK film industry more than tripled by 1996. During that year, 128 UK films were produced. Compare that to 1989, when only 30 UK films were made. Not all of the movies made during the 90s Cool Britannia era were classics, but some were. Who can forget The Full Monty, Mike Lee's Secrets and Lies, and Guy Ritchie's feature film debut, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels? While British movies were making it big at home and abroad, and Britpop was tearing up the music charts, a group of young British artists arrived on the scene, ripping up the rule book in spectacular ways. In August 1991, the work of eight young British artists was put on display at the Serpentine Gallery in London's Hyde Park, in what was considered the most important contemporary art exhibit of the year. Among those taking part was Bristol-born Damien Hirst, a recent graduate from London's Goldsmiths Art College who was already pushing boundaries with unusual installations that included living and dead creatures. His piece at the Serpentine Gallery called Isolated Elements Swimming in the Same Direction for the Purpose of Understanding consisted of a cabinet containing rows of fish, 76 in total. Each one is set in formaldehyde in its own glass case. Later that year, he made another piece with a similarly long name that consisted of a 20-foot tiger shark set in formaldehyde inside a large glass case. Hearst's infamous shark art was funded by advertising tycoon Charles Saatchi, who in the 90s owned the world's largest collection of modern art. Saatchi became Hearst's patron after seeing his work at an unconventional art exhibition called Freeze. It was held in 1988 at an abandoned warehouse in London's Docklands, instead of a cozy gallery on Cork Street, the conventional heartland of the contemporary art market. Hearst was still studying at Goldsmiths when he organized the art show for himself and a dozen or so other non-conformist art students. Hosting an event himself was a break in tradition, but Hearst decided he would do it on his own when no commercial galleries expressed interest. It was the first indicator that Hearst and his classmates from Goldsmiths were going to make radical changes to the rigid world of British art. This group of exciting new artists went on to become known as the Young British Artists, or YBAs, and they were the heart of the Brit art movement of the 90s. Each one had their own style, and they used many different mediums. Their only connection was a non-conformist and revolutionary spirit. Their work ranged from Hearst's dead animals preserved in formaldehyde to Sarah Lucas's sculptures made out of women's tights. Many of their pieces were provocative, even considered by some to be grotesque. Take, for example, Mark Quinn's frozen cast of his head, which was made from nine pints of his own blood. And Tracy Emmons' piece called My Bed, 
which was a bed covered in crumpled sheets stained with bodily secretions, surrounded by condoms and dirty underwear on the floor. The YBAs were arguably the first generation of British artists to be recognized as celebrities, adding a sense of glamour, excitement, and energy to the London art scene, which had always been considered a little bit stale compared to other cities. And the YBAs knew how to market themselves as well. In 1993, Tracy Emin and Sarah Lucas set up The Shop, an art-themed corner store that sold all kinds of handmade merch. Particularly popular were t-shirts with bold painted slogans like complete arsehole and effing useless, as well as ashtrays with pictures of Damien Hirst's face stuck to the bottom. The shop located in London's East End became the place to be for artists who gathered there to make things, talk, drink, and smoke. Meantime, in 1998, Damien Hirst opened his iconic pharmacy restaurant in Notting Hill. And so I thought it'd be funny to make a, a restaurant that was better looked like a pharmacy. And in the end, I think it actually works, which I didn't expect. So I think it's a, it's a complicated juxtaposition that leads to a great experience. A drugstore-themed restaurant was right on brand for Hearst, whose artwork frequently featured medicine. The windows of the restaurant displayed pillboxes and packets of hemorrhoid cream. The bar stools were shaped like aspirins, and the waitstaff tended to tables wearing Prada surgical gowns. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The art scene wasn't the only thing booming in Britain in the 90s. The fashion scene was also alive with fresh talent, like Alexander McQueen and John Galliano. McQueen graduated from London's Central St. Martin's College of Art and Design in 1992. His final project was inspired by Jack the Ripper and was famously bought in its entirety by magazine editor and fashion icon Isabella Blow. McQueen's career took off almost instantly after that, thanks in part to the creation of his bumpster pants, which were cut so low that they revealed some butt cleavage. The pants brought McQueen tons of media attention and recognition. And in 1996, just four years after graduation, he was named British Designer of the Year. That led McQueen to Paris, where in a stunning appointment, the 28-year-old was named Chief Designer of Givenchy. McQueen succeeded fellow British designer John Galliano, who had moved to Dior. At Dior, Galliano received widespread critical acclaim for his haute couture and ready-to-wear collections. You might remember one of his most famous dresses, 
the silk and mink embroidered gown worn by Nicole Kidman at the 69th Academy Awards in 1997. The Smithsonian has called it one of the most influential Oscar dresses of all time. Meanwhile, the move of McQueen to Givenchy stunned the fashion world. The house is known for genteel elegance and exquisite refined good taste. McQueen, by his own admission, was a yob, British slang for an aggressive, rude young man. In fact, his early runway collections earned him the nickname the hooligan of English fashion. And during a fashion internship, he once wrote obscenities inside a jacket being designed for the Prince of Wales, today's King Charles. The move was stunning also because McQueen had only designed eight collections during his short career. And some of those had taken twisted inspiration from unpalatable subjects like rape, car crash, and famine victims. In McQueen's Highland Rape Collection, the final decorative touch was tampon strings dangling from crotches of his signature bumpster trousers. With the appointments of McQueen and Galliano, Britain had taken over the catwalks of Paris, something that British Prime Minister John Major bragged about, which angered McQueen. He said in his yobbish style, Aw, effin' plank, I'm not one of his own. He didn't get me there. F him. So effing typical of government. They do nothing to help you when you're trying to do something, then take credit when you're a success. F off. John Major wasn't the only British politician who attempted to capitalize on the exciting cultural moment happening in the UK. In 1995, Tony Blair, then the new leader of Britain's opposition Labour Party, invited Blurred lead singer Damon Albarn for a meeting in the Houses of Parliament. Over gin and tonics, Blair and a PR flack asked Albarn all sorts of questions, including, what do you think young people are looking for in their governance? Albarn was confused. He thought Blair just wanted to meet him because he was a fan. But turns out the politician wanted to pick his brain on how he might get elected by appealing to young people. Author Daniel Rachel, whose book Don't Look Back in Anger charts the rise and fall of Cool Britannia, says Tony Blair recognized the potential of being associated with Britpop artists. And there was a very direct um, approach to uh, meet key musicians uh, within British music, to, Brit to invite them into Parliament, which happened. Damon went, Damon Albarn went to Parliament. Jarvis Cocker went to a meeting in Whitehall. They appealed to musicians to say, you know, you could do something if you happen to mention that you like Tony or you like New Labour, that would be good for us. Which is exactly what Noel Gallagher did at the 1996 Brit Awards when he and his Oasis bandmates went on stage to accept the award for Best British Group. Oi! There are seven people in this room tonight who are giving a little bit of hope to young people in this country. That is me, our kid, Bonehead, Quigsy, Alan White, Alan McGee and Tony Blair. And if you've all got anything about you, you get up there and you shake Tony Blair's hand, man. He's a man. Power to the people! Tony Blair, who was 41 when he was chosen to lead the Labour Party, was no stranger to rock and roll. In the 70s, he wore his hair long and had briefly been the singer in a college band called Ugly Rumours. He apparently did a mean Mick Jagger impersonation. As opposition leader, the Scottish-born politician exuded energy and charm in a way that was compared to US President Bill Clinton. And like Clinton, Blair was also married to a prominent lawyer. 
1997, a year after Noel Gallagher's support of Blair at the Brit Awards, the new Labour Party swept to power in a landslide election victory, ousting the Tories who had ruled England since 1979. And Blair, at the age of 43, became the youngest British Prime Minister since 1812. Two months after his election victory, Blair held a reception at 10 Downing Street for stars of the entertainment world. The new PM was trying to encourage journalists and the electorate to see him as youthful and cool. Among those who attended were Noel Gallagher and his then-wife Meg Matthews. A picture of Noel holding a glass of champagne and shaking hands with Prime Minister Blair was splashed across the front pages of British newspapers the next day. Noel said he almost didn't go, but his mum told him it was a great honour for her to say one of her sons met the PM. So he decided to show up to rub shoulders with politicians. Personally, I was a fan of Oasis at the time and I thought it was, I thought it was cool that Noel had gone, had gone to Downing Street. Like Noel, like he says, you know, if you've got an invitation to go to Downing Street, you know, you're a working class kid who's grown up on an estate and you've got a letter from 10 Downing Street inviting you, you know, really, you're going to say no to that. Blair's Damon Albarn was also invited, but turned it down. Even though he met with Blair back in 1995, Albarn was now convinced the new government was just using musicians for a photo op. Despite Albarn's squeamishness, the election of Tony Blair's new Labour Party marked the beginning of a new era in Britain. It was a political reset filled with youthfulness and optimism after years of stodgy old Tory rule. Add that to the cultural awakening that was happening around the country, and you've got peak cool Britannia. It was the dawn of a new age in British culture, politics, and life in general. Uh, the cool Britannia of the late 90s was saying, we are not just Shakespeare and stately homes and the royal family. We're also the home of the, of the Beatles and now bands like Oasis and young British artists. So it was, it was trying to promote a rebirth. We shouldn't forget that England is also the home of football or soccer to all my listeners in North America. And the 90s was an exciting time for football fans. That's because in 1996, the European Championship or the Euros came home to the UK. It was the first tournament to be held in Britain since England won the 1966 World Cup at Wembley Stadium. To mark the occasion, English comedians David Baddiel and Frank Skinner, who hosted a popular football TV show, teamed up with a Liverpool rock band called The Lightning Seeds to write a song with a wishful tone. It's coming home, it's coming, football's coming home. It's coming home, it's coming home, it's coming, football's coming home. It's coming home, it's coming home, it's coming home. The Three Lions, which included the line, I know that was then, but it could be again, referring to the 1966 win, became a sensation. It quickly shot to number one on the UK music charts and became the staple at Wembley all summer. The chants got louder and louder as England charged into the semi-finals. Then suddenly, England was eliminated after Gareth Southgate missed the deciding penalty kick to hand Germany a place in the final. The loss of the Euros was a bleak moment in an otherwise decadent decade. But there was a darker side to the good times, in particular, something referred to as lad culture, which celebrated football, beer, and babes. 
Today, we might call it toxic masculinity. Daniel Rachel said Laddism was promoted by men's magazines like Loaded. Loaded magazine had many features, extended interviews with all kinds of people, but it had many pages devoted to semi-clad women. And and, it, and, it, and increasingly over the lifespan of, of um, Loaded, they took pleasure in, uh, in advocating for a life of drinking as much alcohol as you can, talking up um, a, a lad's life, which is chasing... What was the catch line of Loaded? It was uh, something along the lines of, um, for men that should know better. And that involved their attitude to women, their attitude to going out drinking, their attitude to taking drugs. And uh, and ultimately, women get a, a short straw in it all, as they always have done historically, and they continue to do so in the 90s. Daniel mentioned drugs there. According to Blur's Damon Albarn, during the Cool Britannia and Britpop era, a blizzard of cocaine blew into Britain. And for some, that led to heroin and heroin addictions. Musician Johnny Dean told Vice in 2021 that heroin was so omnipresent, it was normal. He said, quote, at one point, it felt like everyone was taking the drug. It was everywhere and infiltrated everything. It ruined people and it killed people. It's no secret that the album Be Here Now, released by Oasis in 1997, crashed and burned because, as Noel says, it was made by five men in the studio on coke, not giving an F. Regardless, the album's release still caused a frenzy among loyal fans who lined up outside music stores to buy a copy, leading to 10 albums being sold every second on the first day. And initially, Q Magazine gave Be Here Now a five-star review. Then as some time passed and people really took a listen, fans and critics realized Oasis had fallen flat with their third album. It was an overproduced, coke-fueled mess. Meantime, earlier that year, Blur released their infamous song two, or the Woohoo song, which was more alt-rock than Britpop. The track actually started out as a joke. Blur never thought their record company would approve. Song two was a reaction to the Britpop era, which the band felt they were done with. You see, even though magazines in the U.S. were just tuning into Cool Britannia in 1997, the whole Britpop scene was actually on its last legs. It had simply run its course. Most of the bands who had ridden the wave were either out of steam or had imploded, like Elastica, thanks to Justine Frischmann's heroin habit. Then this happened. This is BBC Television from London. Diana, Princess of Wales, has died after a car crash in Paris. The French government announced her death just before five o'clock this morning. The death of Princess Diana on August 31st, 1997, who was killed alongside her boyfriend and her driver following a high-speed pursuit by paparazzi, sent a pall over the entire nation. You can't exaggerate the mood change that came over the UK. Uh, it, it, it was like a blanket fell across the country and everything was subdued. Radio One cut their music for I think 48 hours and on the Monday began to introduce very sensitive music and that signposted what would then happen is that bombastic, loud music, people with big gobs, but that wasn't going to be what was, that 
going to be promoted anymore. Britpop was reabsorbed into the mainstream music scene, allowing artists like Robbie Williams and the Spice Girls and their brand of manufactured pop to rule Britannia. As for the political aspect of Cool Britannia, the public's love affair with Tony Blair eventually cooled off. And then it ended completely with his decision to support the US in the Iraqi war following 9-11. It was a jarring end to a fun and exciting era. British journalist Zoe Williams described it this way in The Guardian in 2003. All the things that we thought were cool, the bars, the artists, the obsession with youth, the thrill of buying pointless tat, the politicians, the music, the drugs, the whole sorry lot has blown up in a stench like the swollen roadside carcass of a badger. But if you were paying attention, it might have felt like Britpop was making a comeback in the summer of 2022. Some of the biggest bands from the 90s played gigs across England and headlined festivals from Mexico to Japan. For example, Blur played two sold-out shows at Wembley Stadium in London in support of their new album, The Ballad of Darren, their first in eight years. Pulp also got back together for a reunion tour, and there was even chatter about a potential Oasis reunion, although Noel and Liam Gallagher quickly knocked the idea back, pointing out on separate radio shows that they don't talk to each other, proving that some things never change. Thanks for listening to part two of our look at the rise and fall of Britpop and Cool Britannia. And once again, thanks to my guest, award-winning author, Daniel Rachel. In addition to being a musician in the 90s, he has written several great books, including Don't Look Back in Anger, The Rise and Fall of Cool Britannia, told by those who were there. I'll put the details in the show notes in case you want to check it out. If you have a suggestion for an episode, please let me know. You can always reach me through social media. I'm on Instagram at That 90s Podcast and on Facebook at 90s History. You can also email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Gonzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 